Uh, one of the great tragedies is that my father never saw me uh, get published. Uh, he passed away just as I think before I wrote my first short story. Uh, so he never saw anything of me in print. My mother is still alive. She uh, is 90 years old. Uh, she's, oh, wow. Yeah, she's very proud. Uh, there's a, a wonderful story about my mother. Uh, I had a ritual every book. Uh, that I published, I would take the very first copy to her, I would sign it and dedicate it and thank her. And I would take it to her and she would say, thank you very much. Then about a week or two afterwards, she would call me and I would see it's her. And I'd say, hi, Ma. And she, there'll be this long silence. And then she will say, I didn't raise you like this. <laughs> you know, because of the, the language and the sex scenes and that sort of thing. But I think she's very proud. That's Dion Mayer, my guest today, and this is the Generation Africa podcast. I'm Tim Alburn, your host. Dion is an award-winning crime fiction author and screenwriter from South Africa, and he's a powerhouse of African fiction. He's one of my favorite writers, and his books really capture the complexity of South Africa and the continent, and they're real page-turners. Dion writes in Afrikaans, but his books have been translated into 27 languages and have been published in 40 countries. Today, you're going to hear my terrible pronunciation of Afrikaans' names. We're going to talk about Trackers, his book that's just been turned into a TV series, how Dion became an author, what his routine looks like, and life in South Africa. So please do join us. Dion, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I mean, you've been described as one of the best crime writers in the world. Your work has been described as muscular yet beautifully rendered, uh, a meticulously crafted portrait of modern-day South Africa. And I think that's all very true. But what I'd like, you know, and you're an international bestseller, but how I'd like to start is to go back a bit and just talk about how you got into writing and how you became an author and what the sort of process of that was. Tim, thanks for having me and, and thanks for saying all those lovely things. Uh, you must never believe what you read in the press. Um, it's it's a long story and being a novelist, I sort of specialize in, in long stories. You know, it, it's it's been an incredible journey. I, I loved reading when I was a kid um, and I had the urge, the need. It's, it's very difficult to describe how it came about, but you know, that... I read so many books as a child and realized that it would have been fantastic for me to give other people the same pleasure that I was getting out of books, uh, telling stories that took people to these wonderful places that books were taking me. And there, there was always this urge, this need, this this want to do the same thing. It's, you know, I, th I think writing found me. I did not find writing. So... All through my high school, I I wrote uh, a lot of essays. I had a wonderful English teacher, Mrs. De Brain, who had passed away some years ago, who, when she read my essays, uh, she gave me such positive feedback. And she said, but write more. If you want to write more, I'll read it all. And I, I had a special book in which I started writing stories that she could read. And uh, I think the most beautiful thing that she ever did was to encourage me and to tell me that uh, this this is good, you know, this she loves it, she she thinks I should do more. But then life happens, you know, then I, I went, yeah. in, uh, I did my one year of military service and then I went to the university um, and became a journalist 
and then you write for your bread and butter and fiction, storytelling. There's also, also the, the very real fact that I grew up in a, in a small, well, not so small, uh, town in, in the northwest, what is now northwest province called Clarksdorp, where writing, having a career as an author was just never an option. Um, I mean, my parents, we were, my dad was a blue collar worker. Uh, I think their only compunction, their only hope was to get their children a better education. Uh, so being, being able to earn a living as an author was never on the cards. You either became, if you were very smart, a doctor or a lawyer. I wasn't that. So I, I was hoping to become a teacher, ended up my first job as a journalist at a daily newspaper in Bloemfontein called the Volksblatt, which today uh, appears for the very last time. It's a, it's a very sad day. Yeah, um, really? Is that today? Yeah, today is the very last issue of, of the paper edition. It'll live on in digital format. But, you know, that's the way of the world. So, and then I, I, I was a journalist and, and later uh, an industrial journalist for some years and then got into advertising. And again, not writing any fiction at all, not having any hope of, you sort of for, forget that you weren't too bad an essay writer. And then yeah. in, when I was in advertising, um, I, I worked for a, a big financial institution in the advertising department, and I was asked to write or devise a little marketing video of about 10 minutes uh, to promote uh, uh life insurance and, and, and financial products for farmers. So I came up with a little concept uh, that were little stories, little five-minute stories. I think it was five or six episodes. And the feedback on that was fantastic. And I thought, well, you know, and I sort of rediscovered the joy mm. of, of writing fiction, of devising stories. And uh, people sort of loved it. It was it aired on, on SABC back then uh, at, uh, on a breakfast show. And people loved it. And uh, that got me going again, thinking, well, you know, maybe uh, I should try my hand at that again. There's also the fact that I was a single parent with two small kids in my care, and I, I uh, was really battling financially. So uh, that was the big motivation, that and the fact that I sort of rediscovered telling stories. And how old were your kids at this stage? My kids were, I think, I think six or seven and one or two years old, something like that. I, I'll have to go go check to make exactly sure. But I mean, my, my son was, was still a toddler and my daughter yeah. was, I think she had just entered high school. So um, I, I was desperate. I, I worked full day job. I did a lot of freelance journalism and page newspaper design in the evenings and over weekends. And I thought that writing, short, writing and selling short stories would be uh, another uh, income, a form of income. So I wrote my first short story in Afrikaans. I sent it off to Heisgenoot and uh, the the story editor was kind enough to send it back and say, look, I like the story, but in Afrikaans, uh, we write fiction in the present tense and not in the past tense as in English. Most of my writing had always been, fiction writing had always been in English up to that time. So I rewrote it in the present tense and he bought it for uh, what was a princely sum for me back then. Uh, and then I thought, this is easy money. So I wrote another one, <laughs> sent it off, and they said, no thanks, nobody wanted it. So I thought, okay, this is maybe not so easy. And then over <laughs> the next two or three or four years, I kept writing short stories and I sold most of them. Uh, and I thought, okay, it's time now to to 
aim a bit higher and try for a, for a novel. Um, I knew that the only stories that I wanted to tell and probably could tell was suspense and crime fiction. That was where my big passion and love was. I've been reading crime fiction especially and, and suspense fiction since my early teens. I loved it. I had a real passion for it. So I thought, okay, let me try and write this. Um, in Afrikaans, the, the big problem was that this was just after the end of apartheid, which also I think played a major role in me deciding to write crime fiction. Because if you look at, at any society anywhere in the world, crime fiction can only happen in a democracy. Um, you know, if you have a policeman who is the representative of the state, then it's got to be yeah. a legitimate state. So um, that's why I will always be grateful to Nelson Mandela and F.W. de Klerk because they, they had a big influence on, on me becoming a writer. Anyway, so, <laughs> among other things. <laughs> yeah, among a lot of other things, exactly. So um, I, I wrote uh, suspense fiction. My first novel, I always say, is like having a brother in jail. You... You can't deny that it's there, but you don't want to talk about it. But it was a great learning experience. And I sent it off to uh, the prominent Afrikaans publisher at that time, Tafelberg, without realizing that they haven't published that sort of thing in, I think, 20 years. You know, they haven't, they had no editors with experience. And they came back with a lot of very interesting suggestions. I had to change the title. I, having been greatly under the influence of the late great Ed McBain, who wrote all these crime novels with one-word titles. I thought that was the coolest thing on, on earth, so I gave my first novel a one-word title, Icarus, and uh, they came back and they said, no, one-word titles don't work in Afrikaans, they have to change it. And they also, when they finally, they, they took 18 months or two years before they finally published it, uh, and they they published it with a very gaudy sort of a common cover. Uh, I think to tell Afrikaans people, this is this is a very common sort of suspense story. Good Afrikaners don't read crime and suspense fiction. <laughs> so be warned, this is common and, uh, and, and gaudy. And it sold all of 800 copies. They printed 1,200. Uh, it sold 800 and they sent me a letter uh, saying, you know, we we don't want to publish anything more that, that you may write because this was a total failure, but you can buy as many of the remaining 400 uh, at one rand a copy. So I bought 20 just thinking that that was probably going to be the last book that I uh, was ever going to publish. They're probably worth a fortune now. <laughs> I don't know. I still have, I think, about 15 <laughs> of them left. Um but then I had, by that time, because they took such a long time to publish that first novel, I had already written a second one, uh, which was published in English uh, later as uh, Dead Before Dying. And yeah. a totally different publisher, very small publisher, Eddie Scholes from Quellery, um, she offered to publish it. And then I got very lucky. My current agent, the agent that I acquired uh, all of 20 years ago, Isabel Dixon in London, her father, who is a former publisher, he read that book. Uh, the Afrikaans title was Phoenix. Uh, and he called me out of the blue and said, look, um, I think this is good enough for the international market. Would you mind? He actually took me to lunch and he said, would you mind if I sent this to my daughter, my uh, daughter-in-law, Isabel Dixon in London? And I, I mean, I was just astounded and very grateful. And he sent it off to Isabel. Isabel offered to represent me. Uh, and then things started slowly 
uh, looking up. The funny thing is that I, that first book was published in English and it won a major French, it was also translated into French, and it won a major French prize. But, you know, this is a couple of years after it was published in Afrikaans. And by that time, I had already published a second novel or a third novel in Afrikaans. Mm-hmm. Um, but my Afrikaans sales were still very fat, and it was only but did after. You think about, did you think about publishing in English to start with? I mean, would that have been easier? You know, it's a bigger market. You obviously write very well in English. Well, thank you, but you know, I mean, back then it was extremely tough for a South African author to get published, even locally in English. There weren't mm. any major English uh, publishers back then that were looking for crime fiction anyway. Uh, and by that time, having worked as a journalist in Afrikaans, I had really discovered and, and grown to love Afrikaans as a, as a language to write in. And I think writing in a second language was always going to be just that one step more difficult, you know, finding the right word. And I, I still make grammatical errors in English when I write. So uh, it would have been, I think, tougher. Um, but things sort of worked out okay, because when I won the French prize, uh, the South African reviews. It was very strange to me that um, the reviews that I got in Afrikaans were very stinky for the first three novels. Uh, you know, it was sort of, uh, this is lowbrow uh, stuff for stupid people. And then when I went, won the, uh, uh, I mean, this is the major French uh, crime fiction prize, it all changed. And all the uh, yeah, Afrikaans yeah. reviewers said, oh, you know, this is not so bad. So and that's, that's really how it happened. I mean, Isabel Dixon, um, my Afrikaans editor, uh, Etienne Blumhoff, that I still work with today, they were the people that, that made it all possible. And then the wow. other languages came. And uh, But I still, I, I still wrote, I think, for 12 years before I could uh, um, leave my day job and start writing full time. It, it was quite a journey. Yeah, it's a, lo- it's a long time. But I mean, I wonder, you know, you, you spoke about growing up in Clerksdorf and I wonder how much, I mean, I know there was a good library there and I wonder how much that played a part in your sort of development as a writer and having access to books. And could you talk a bit about that and what and what that sort of meant in your development? Well, I think it, it meant everything in my development. I think that together with an English teacher who encouraged me, an Afrikaans teacher who uh, encouraged me too, I think that made a big difference. I think the, the most important thing was growing up in a house where both my parents were readers. My dad was very busy, so he didn't have as much time to read. But my mother was was a big reader, and she started going to the library ever since I could remember. I mean, we were very small, and she would take us to the library and even take out book, books for us as well. So there were always books in the house. We couldn't afford to buy books, um, but there were always library books in the house. So going to the library was, was second nature, and... I think we could read from grade one, and you know they were just we always were into books. Uh, we were three brothers, and all three of us were readers. Um, and the, the the library in Clarksdorp was the shining light of cultural activity in that town. It was really, really well run and extremely well stocked. Uh, there was everything. First of all, a children's section. And then in, I think, when I started going to high school, I started going, I asked if I could start going to the adult section. Um, and that made, that had a huge influence. My father was always willing to take us. The, the library was uh, just too far for a bike ride from where we were living. But he was always willing to take us two, three times a week. And uh, I must have read, I don't know, 
six books a week back then. I mean, not not thick novels, but you know. So, uh, and I think writing is the very best thing that any author or aspiring author can do. I think that is the most important thing is yeah. read a lot, read the best authors out there because you learn more by uh, osmosis through reading than any degree. I did a master's in, in creative writing, which was a fantastic experience and I learned a lot, but I still think I learned 80% of, of, of writing through through reading the world's best crime and suspense authors and, and, and literary authors, obviously, too. Yeah. And are your parents, are they, I mean, did, are they still alive? Did they, did they see you publish? How did they sort of feel about that if they did? Uh, one of the great tragedies is that my father never saw me uh, get published. Uh, he passed away just as I think before I wrote my first short story, uh, so he never saw anything of me in print. My mother is still alive. She uh, is 90 years old. Uh, she's, oh, wow. Yeah, she's very proud. Uh, there's a, a wonderful story about my mother. Uh, I had a ritual. Every book uh, that I published, I would take the very first copy to her, would sign it and dedicate it and thank her. And I would take it to her and she would say, thank you very much. Then about a week or two afterwards, she would call me and I would see it's her. And I'd say, hi, Ma, and she, there'll be this long silence, and then she'll say, I didn't raise you like this. <laughs> you know, because of the, the language and the sex scenes and that sort of thing. But I think she's very proud. She tells everybody that, you know, I, she taught me to read and, and, and that sort of thing. So, uh, But I'm very happy that she, uh, uh, that she could at least see me getting published. Yeah, because, I mean, that's interesting, because Afrikaans can be, in some ways, quite a conservative society and your books i mean there is there is some sort of colorful happenings in there and colorful language was that ever sort of an issue is that ever something you thought about i mean i'm glad you didn't tone it down because it makes it so real but is that something you ever thought about or publishers ever put pressure on you to do you know i i didn't even think about it when i started writing because the books that i loved were gritty uh sort of hardcore crime fiction uh, real noir yeah. and and language and 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 not that I, I don't think I have a lot of graphic violence in my novels, but, you know, I, th I thought that good crime and suspense fiction was as gritty and as close to real life as possible. And policemen and women, having been a journalist and working with a lot of police people, uh, that's the way that they speak. So when I started uh, writing in Afrikaans, the novels, I never thought twice about making it as true to life as I could. And then I started getting um, emails from Afrikaans readers who were greatly upset. Um, it's it's an interesting thing. Um, I only received email or letters from uh, Bible Belt in America and Afrikaans readers about the language. And I only received uh, uh, email and letters from female British readers when there was any animal harmed in any of my books. It's uh, one of those wonderful things. <clears throat> but, the, you know, when, uh, when... And the French just loved it all, of course. Yeah, they just yeah. loved it all. They don't complain about anything. No, you know, and then, and then you have to make the decision. And I, I realized that eventually... My, and when I, whenever I get an email like that, my standard answer is, I respect your right not to like this. And I respect your right to choose what you want to read. And I, you know, I, I would be very comfortable if you 
not chose to read any of my books again, but I hope that you respect my right to write the kind of books that I, that I like writing. So there was yeah. that sort of feedback, but um, you know, you, you can't let that influence uh, what you think is going to work best. And if, if I look at the majority of readers, then they don't really mind that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, something I think in, in, in your books that I, that I really like is the sort of this whole concept of the anti-hero, you know, and you'll, you'll have to excuse my Afrikaans pronunciation here, but Benny Crystal, you know, I mean, he's, he's an alcoholic, you know, he's a deeply flawed individual, yet you make him very likable. And you make him, people root for him and they always want Benny to do well. And I just wondered if you could talk a bit about that character development and how, how having flawed characters is sort of central to your books. You know, you don't have these perfect characters, which is great, which, I, which makes them more human. But could you just talk about that a little bit? Sure. You know, firstly, I think um, all the great crime fiction that I ever read in my life had deeply flawed characters. Um, if I think of Ed McBain, if I think of John D. MacDonald, none of the, their characters had... had great attributes, but they all had major flaws. And what that does, I think, is to make the characters much more human, to make them much easier for the reader to identify. Certainly for me as a reader, it was much easier to identify, to empathize with them, and to really invest in their journey. Because, uh, and then later when I, and it's it's crime fiction convention, really. It's, it's one of those mm. conventions in crime fiction that, uh, that often happens. I'll talk a little bit about Benny Christel later, but let me just say that um, I later learned when I started analyzing what crime fiction is all about. Uh, conflict is the mother of suspense. And conflict has many layers. It's like a, an onion. Uh, you can't only have the conflict between uh, the good and the bad, law and order against crime, uh, the good cop against the evil world, uh, or the cop against the system, um, that, that makes the book very shallow uh, um, and I think a little bit uninteresting. Sure, you can write a short story like that where there isn't enough space to really do character development. But if you have the internal conflict of the character within himself, struggling against his inner demons, I think that adds a layer not only of suspense, but of interest too. So yeah. th those are some of the reasons why um, I tend to have uh, characters with, with a lot of flaws. But let me just say about Benny Chrysal that um, I never had the intention of creating a character that was an alcoholic cop. Uh, my first cop character was Machu Bear in Dead Before Dying, and he was not an alcoholic. He, uh, he suffered from depression because of the death of his wife. Uh, he was very inward looking, but he was not an alcoholic. But mm. in that book, uh, Dead Before Dying, uh, I needed a colleague of Machu Bear's to walk in in a scene and spoil Machu Bear's love interest fun. Uh, so on the fly, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll name this character after one of my favorite teachers at school who was a very sober, upstanding, wonderful human being, but just sort of a little homage to one of my favorite teachers, Mr. Ben Chrysal, and I'll call this character Benny Chrysal. And I had him look, uh, his looks I based loosely on a cop that I had met doing research for that book at what was the, back then the Murder and Robbery Squad in, in Belleville South. Um, and this cop that I had an interview with because he uh, covered a case, he did a case, he investigated a, a very interesting case of an, uh, 
uh, an arrow murderer, a, a crossbow murderer. Um, and you could see that this guy was a heavy drinker. So, and he had a sort of a Slavic face. He, he reminded me mm. of, you know, having sort of a Russian or a Slavic uh, a, a, a genetic background. So I very loosely, and honestly, I did not spend five minutes thinking about this character that I had to create because he was only going to be there for one scene. So I named him after the teacher, Benny, I called him Benny Grisel, I made him, because he needed to be drunk for the scene. Um, and he walked into the scene and it just became interesting almost immediately. And eventually ended up having a larger role in, in the novel than I ever anticipated. And when I had finished the book, I thought, you know, he, he always makes something happen on the page. I mean, writing yeah. is a struggle. And if you have a character that, uh, makes that struggle a little easier, then maybe I should go back to him. But I had plans for another novel, completely different novels. I think it took me two or three novels after that before I had a story that fit Benny Grisel perfectly. And then I had to go back and really take an, a long, hard look at this character because I knew he was going to be, he could, there was a large, a big danger of him being a bit of a cliche, this alcoholic cop struggling uh, you know, the, the fight against the bottle, that sort of thing. Um, so I tried to do as much research on alcoholism as I could. Um, my translator at that time uh, was one of the uh, the great radio personalities and, and reviewers of her time, Madeleine von Bouillon. Uh, she, uh, she was a larger-than-life, hugely intelligent, uh, big personality woman. I just loved her. But she was an alcoholic and she was very open about it. And yeah. she would she would tell me exactly what happened at Alcoholics Anonymous uh, meetings, what it was like to be an alcoholic. We had this thing where she would translate 10 uh, chapters of, of one of my new novels and send it back to me. And I would write her back and I say, Madeleine, I could see which chapters you translated before lunch and after lunch. And then she'd have a big laugh and she'll do them over. But, you know, it was a wonderful relationship. But she really taught me so much about what it's like to be an alcoholic and that constant struggle with a bottle. I actually went with her yeah. to a few Alcoholics Anonymous meetings uh, with the meeting's permission. Uh, and I really tried to understand that dependency, um, that addiction uh, and the damage that it can do. Um, and then I tried to write uh, Benny Grisel in that way, you know, much more realistic. Yeah. And, um, and when you're doing, I mean, is it, does it ever get depressing? I mean, you're writing these sort of stories about a guy who's an alcoholic and dealing with very violent crimes. I mean, mentally, when you're alone in the writing process, how does that impact you? I think initially it impacted me more. I, I distinctly remember the first two or three novels that I wrote uh, there were scenes that upset me so much that I had to go for long walks just to get it out of my system. But I think eventually you learn to distance yourself just a little bit. I think it's very important for the author to feel strongly what the character feels, because if you don't feel it, then the reader isn't going to feel it. Um, but you do learn to, to distance yourself a little bit. And I also think if you look at uh, especially the Benny Grisel novels, Benny has lightened up a little bit he's developed a stronger uh, sense of humor and his interaction with uh, Vaughn Cupido his his yeah. brother from another mother uh, I think that that has helped a lot because Vaughn is a much more positive character Vaughn is a is a guy who loves life 
he loves being a policeman. And ladies. And ladies. Uh, he loves being a hawk. He loves being a policeman and a detective. He loves being an officer. Um, and he's got a great sense of humor. And he sort of lifts Benny all the time. Um, yeah. And I, you know, Vaughn wasn't there from, from the beginning. He, they weren't big buddies from the beginning. But it's a sort of a, I think I, I realized in the development of the novels that I needed a, a foil for Benny, an alter ego, a, a sounding board that was that was not as dark a personality as Benny. And I think it has rubbed off. I've just finished a new Benny book now. And uh, I'm delighted to see that Benny is lightening up even more. Yeah. Uh, it it makes for easier writing as well. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> the process of sort of writing, I mean, how long does it take you to write a book? Do you have a specific place where you write? Is there is there a process? And, and, you know, I mean, something I found when I was writing my book, which, um, you know, like your first book was sort of spectacularly unsuccessful, but was that it's, it's quite a, it's quite a lonely process, you know, writing, you're sitting at a desk all day. And I just wonder if you could talk about that a bit. Yeah, it is a, it's an extremely lonely process. You know, every time we have friends over for dinner, my, uh, my neighbor is, uh, is a medical doctor. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking and he was telling about how they had to resuscitate a woman who had cardiac arrest. And I thought, I would, I can, I can't tell stories like that because nobody yeah. knows what's happening in my world. And I don't want to tell people what I'm writing because I'm, hopefully if they read the book, I'm going to spoil it. So it's not only you're alone in this world, but you, you can't really talk to because nobody can relate unless you're talking to other authors, which uh, uh, is, is a great pleasure. One of the great things about doing festivals and, and seminars is that you get to sit down with other authors and you can discuss the nature of your work. Luckily, my wife, Marianne, is extremely understanding and I would often tell her what's happening in the book. I will read passages or, or, or chapters to her so that she knows where my head is at. Um, I usually take I've always taken about 18 months to 24 months to finish a novel simply because when I started writing, I the only time that I was that I had available was when my kids were asleep, which was four o'clock until about seven o'clock in the morning. Uh, so then books took a long time. And when you finally yeah. start writing full time, uh, you have to do all these uh, book marketing tours and festivals and interviews and that sort of thing. So I think 14, 18, 24 months. It depends on, I mean, if you if you have a lockdown um, like we've had this year, then it's it's fantastic. You don't have anything else to do. And I, I yeah. basically wrote the book in four months, um, oh, essentially wow. this year, because that was the only thing I could do. Uh, if every year was like that, that would be fantastic. Um, I write, I, I prefer writing right here where I'm talking to you now, which is my, my little study, my writing room. Uh, I close all the windows. I just have one light uh, to illuminate my dictionary or the, the, the research source that I'm looking at. Um, I have written in other places when uh, I had to, hotel rooms and airports and that sort of thing. But I hate that. I find that very hard. I prefer yeah. writing right here where I think all authors are easily distracted. So I try to minimize all the distractions around me. Um, and then just try and work every morning at around about six o'clock. I try to sit down uh, and I work until lunchtime. I have breakfast and I go back to work and then uh, work until lunchtime. It also depends on 
what phase the book is in. In the first half of the book, I find it very hard to write after lunchtime uh, because it's hard going. It's a struggle. It's uh, wrestling with the words and the paragraphs and the sentences and the story. And then after that, I start writing longer hours because the writing gets easier. The, the, the book starts flowing. You, you get into the texture and the feeling and the atmosphere of the book. And then the last quarter, I often write 12, 14 hours a day uh, because wow. it's, it's like a runaway train and you, you you know, you can hardly keep up with the way that the story is going. And do you know where the book's going from the start? I mean, do you have a rough plan or do you have an exact plan and do you deviate from that? How does that, how does that work? Let me try and, and take you through the whole process. You know, when, when I I'm always have little story ideas in the back of my head um, and often in a panicky fashion when you almost finished with the book, you think, oh my God, do I have another book in me? And that has never changed. That is always the case. And then, you know, well, you have three or four story ideas, but are they any good? So when I finish a book, um, very quickly after that, I start thinking and then I start researching. Um, research is the best, the most creative thing that one can do, because what research does is it multiplies your creative options in terms of where you can and want to take a story. I start off with a very rough idea of this might be an interesting story arc, uh, do the research, and the research has a major influence on, on what I want to do. There's a beautiful quote from an American author whose name I always forget, who said that writing is like driving in a car at night. You know more or less where you're going. You, you're going from Stellenbosch to, you know, sort of Pretoria Gauteng way. Um, but all you can see is what is illuminated by the headlights, which is the next one or two or three chapters, if you're lucky, four chapters. Um, and as you travel, as you write, as you do more research, as you keep thinking about the book, as you explore the story on the page every day, um, then the destination might either change completely and you decide to go to Durban because that looks much more exciting in terms of the story, or you realize that, Pretoria is not such a bad destination, but, you know, it, you change a little bit. Every book is different. Some books uh, had a totally different ending to what I anticipated in the first quarter or the first half. And some books have, have had exactly the same ending, um, just hopefully better. Uh, you, the route that you took there was, was better for the story. Um it's a, it's a wonderful process. I still don't understand the writing process. Uh, I think it's a very subliminal, subconscious process. What I have learned to do is to trust the process. In every book, uh, there are moments when you start having serious doubt that this is working. Um, we don't really see uh, the next three or four chapters. And then you've got to trust your instincts and trust the, the process and just keep chipping away at it. Sometimes... Uh, go back and do more research, sometimes sleep on it, sometimes take a very long bike ride or three or four days off to really ponder uh, the writing problem. Um, but eventually you sort of get a solution for everything. So, so you call it a writing problem, not writer's block. I mean, do you, do you get writer's block? or I'd, I don't believe in writer's block. I think if you have uh, university fees of your children to pay, you can't afford to have writer's block. <laughs> It's a funny thing. I, I, most authors that I've spoken to have confirmed that writer's block is a luxury that only uh, 
semi-serious authors can afford. Yes, there are always problems in the writing process, and sometimes mm. you have to throw away 10 or 15 pages and do it over, but that's not writing writer's block. That's just honing, rewriting, and re- writing is rewriting. I mean, I start every morning rewriting what I did the day before, uh, sometimes discarding what I did the day before because it's totally useless. And you can only see that when you've had a night between what you wrote uh, and, and, and give it a fresh eye. Sometimes you have to take three or four days before you can look at it objectively. It's a process. It's like any job, Tim, where you know you have your good days and your bad days, and sometimes if you had a, if you had a bad day, you have to throw that away and, and start over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what was amazing? I saw on your sort of social media your um, your breakdown of the book you've just written, which we can hopefully talk about. And like your average your average sentence, I think is is sorry, yeah, average sentence is eight words, yeah. which I think is like something that people who are trying to write but don't do it very well. That's the mistake they make, isn't it? Long sentences. And it's quite amazing how much you can fit into uh, into short sentences. That sort of hit home to me. Yeah, but, but I think fiction uh, demands short sentences. You have a lot of sentences where somebody just says yes, or I understand, or whatever. So dialogue uh, distorts it a little bit. Um, but I think the paragraph length to me, is the, is the more important number. It's it's a strange thing. I use Scrivener. Uh, it's an application for, for writing yeah. all sorts of things. And just a day before I put out those statistics on social media, I actually saw a tweet from Scrivener saying, you can't do this. I didn't even know that, that one, one can get those sort of statistics. And I thought, well, this is interesting. Let me look at the stats of this novel. And... Uh, it uh, it was it was quite interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, very, I found it very interesting. But Dion, I wanted to talk to you a bit about Trackers. Um, I mean, it's just been made into an MNet series, and it's a it's a it's a great series. I really really enjoyed it. I thought it was it went very well with the book. I thought it was true when it needed to be, and there was changes when 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 they couldn't be translated onto screen. But I mean, that must have been quite a nerve wracking process. But I mean, one thing I really liked about it was that it used South African actors. And I think so often these kind of these kind of TV series will use like a big American name or a big European name or something. But could you talk a bit about the process of how it went from book to to TV series and, and what other sort of TV series you might have in the pipeline? Well, again, quite a long story. Uh, I remember Michael Connolly, I'd, uh, the, the wonderful American gentleman and crime fiction author, we did a book tour together a lot, number, I mean, this is probably 15 years ago, uh, and some, some very funny incidents from that book to it too, but Michael told me that if I ever get uh, an offer for the film rights, because he had an experience, uh, Clint Eastwood turned one of his movies into, uh, one of his books into a movie, and he mm. said that the biggest lesson he had learned from that was take the money and walk away, because what they're going to do with the book is going to hurt. It doesn't matter who, who does that. And I I absolutely believe that. And I had done that uh, a couple of years ago with one of my books. And I was very unhappy with, like Connolly warned me, but I you know, I took the money and I walked away. And I thought, this is not, I, I don't want to keep on doing that. The interesting thing is that in the meantime, Connolly had developed uh, the Bosch TV series in which he was an executive producer and he was looking after his... Uh, uh, his own story and I thought that's the way to go so um, 
three, four years ago, we started a little company to uh, wonderful people that I met in the movie business uh, in the last few years. Uh, Tim Tron and Kubis van der Berg, we started a little movie company called Scene 23. And we looked at all, well, the Trackers was the only novel at that time that wasn't under option by someone else. And we took Trackers as a property and uh, Tim and Kubis went to America, they went to the UK to try and find co-production partners. And we had certain uh, upfront things that we believed in. First of all, we believed that we should get a really good writing team, uh, but that I would have the last say on, I didn't want to interfere, but I, I at least had the last say on what the scripts yeah. would look like. Secondly, we wanted, we believed in South African talent, not only in front of the camera, but behind the camera too. We know that we have some of the best technicians in the film industry anywhere in the world. And also we have the best acting talent, some of the best acting talent in the world. Um, and we believe that if you're going to tell a South African story, tell it with authentic South African voices and accents. So those were the two things that, that really believed we really believed in. We got uh, an international uh, um, co-production partner, Three Rivers in the UK, and then Mnet came on board, and they really believed in this project. They invested in it big time. They brought in HBO, and it, it just sort of all came together. Uh, we assembled a fantastic writing team with a very good, uh, very um, experienced British uh, lead writer, some young South African authors, uh, writers, uh, script writers, and I was part of that whole creative process of developing and adapting uh, the book. Uh, and I'm happy to say that the the writing team was so proficient and so wonderful that I never had to voice a concern about what was going to be left out or what was going to be changed. Um, I think we were united by one vision, everybody who worked on it, and that was to make great television. Because that's one thing that I believe is that a novel is a novel, but if you take that novel and you turn it, ex you know, an exact blueprint of that into television, it might not be great television. So yeah. we wanted to make the very best television series. My, my philosophy is if you make a bad TV series, it's going to harm the book, if, even if it's exactly like the book. But if you make a great mm -hmm. TV series and it differs from the book, it's, it's going to enhance the, the sales of the book. It's going to get more readers to, to read your work. So that was our philosophy. And I think uh, to a very large extent, we achieved that. Uh, which was not my fault. It was uh, the incredible team that worked on this. Uh, as I say, the crew and cast, the director, the writers, um, the editor, the whole lot of them, the, the, the guy who did the music was just a, um, a genius. And I'm extremely proud. I think it really showcases what we as South Africans can do. I think it's, it's, it's a world-class production. Yeah, I mean, some of those roles, like The Bull, I mean, that, there's a particular scene where... The female police, her name's just left me, but she goes up to his house and he's there with his shirt open. And just, you know, he just plays that part so well, that sort of criminal and that gangster. And you can just, it's, it's brilliant. But I mean, that's, that's something that, that strikes me in your book and also comes through in Trackers. It's, it really focuses on the sort of the grittier side of South Africa and the, the sort of the seedier side of life. But I think it's not, it's not anti-South African in any way. I mean, I think you come across 
after reading the books or watching trackers, wanting to go to South Africa. And I don't, you know, what, what is it about that? How, how do you manage to achieve that sort of balance? And, and what is it about South Africa that, you know, despite its problems, you love and you, and you, you, you stay living here? Yeah. Uh, to, um, you know, f- first of all, all crime fiction opens a window onto the seedy side of any society, whether it's uh, set in LA, in New York, in London, in Paris, crime fiction is about crime and, and, that whole world and people seem to to enjoy uh, seeing a bit of that world from the safety of of their bed like you know lying in bed reading a book um what i try to do and it's it's one of the things i've always tried to be a, an ambassador for south africa because I, I love this country and i think it's it's a fantastic country with so much potential and i think the people in this country are are incredible um We've never been blessed with great politicians uh, ever, but the, the ordinary people in this country are just wonderful. So, And I think all it needs, um, yes, you can write about crime fiction, but if you're honest about the type of people, the, the diversity of people, the diversity of cultures, the, the wonderful, caring people that we have in, in this country, then it sort of speaks for itself. Um, I think if you feel positive about something like your country, then it will shine through in the books. If you are going to be a very negative complainer who finds fault with everything, then that's going to come through in the books too. So maybe it's just my positivity about South Africa. Um, I keep believing that um, we're going to get it right. I think in uh, the previous novel, uh, uh, The Last Hunt, I think it's Benny Grisel who said that in South Africa, Things are never as great as we hope, but it's never as bad as we fear. Uh, and I, I really believe that is true. And I think we'll we'll muddle on and we'll muddle through. Um, but for me, it is important to to show South Africa in in the positive light that there is there's there are a lot of positives in South Africa. Uh, and whenever yeah, I when I ever I go overseas, I try to tell people that they have to become a tourist to South Africa because there's no better destination in the world. We have the most beautiful country in the world and I've, I've really been to a lot of places. Uh, we have the most incredible cultures and, and, and people in this country. Uh, it's unique. It's different to anything else that they've ever experienced. And we have the most hospitable people, people in the world. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, why not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you spoke so just jumping back a little bit, but something just sort of occurred to me. You spoke a bit before about how you know when you were researching um, the police, you'd go and spend some time with the police. You went to an Alcoholics Anonymous, but it, it occurred to me when I was thinking about you know the bull. Because how do you get into that sort of criminal mind which you which you do so well, or you know the, the sort of without giving too much away in trackers, the kind of Islamic terrorist side. How do you how do you do that research? Is it is it more based behind the computer, or do you get out there and go and meet? gangsters and criminals? I, I've met a few that are very hard to 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 talk to, to because obviously nobody's going to admit readily to being a gangster. Most of it um, is, is through talking to police people. Yeah. Uh, there's Colonel Elmarie Mayberg, who uh, is uh, a criminal psychologist. She is still in the South African police services. She has been an amazing resource and an incredible human being. Uh, she has helped me out so much. 
Um, I've spoken to Professor Duplo, who I think is one of the most experienced criminal psychologists, uh, forensic psychologists in the world. I think Duplo, who taught, I was one of his students um, at, at Potchefstroom University and later at uh, Free State University. Uh, he has interviewed more uh, serial killers than any other psychologist in the world, simply because we're a country with uh, with a lot of them, and uh, he was sort of the sole expert at, at one stage. So I've 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 got these people that that are great resources that are willing to talk to me and that give me such incredible input. Police detectives that I've spoken to. Uh, I've read a lot about criminal psychology. Um, but eventually you have to make the stuff up. You know, you um, eventually, my favorite word in English is verisimilitude. Um, and that is what crime fiction needs. I think all fiction needs verisimilitude, that texture of the truth, that feeling that this yeah. could be true. And if you if you can do that with a, with a character like Nkunzi, that he becomes believable, then um, then that's great. Then, then that makes me very happy. Yeah, and Dion, you you spoke about when you sort of when you started in this in this sort of genre, there was very little in Afrikaans, or there had been nothing for sort of thirty years. Now there's quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of crime fiction. Is there anyone you'd recommend people read? South Africans, oh, there are there are so many. Um, um, uh, Mike Nichol, I think in English is fantastic. Um, Margie Orford, it's about time that she publishes again. Uh, she was one of the first uh, English crime fiction voices after the end of apartheid. In Afrikaans, there are lots. I mean, there's uh, Rudy van Rensburg, Chris Karsten, Karen Brainard. Uh, I'm going to forget so many now. Uh, th there's a lot of them. There's actually um, there's a resource that Mike Nichol wrote about all South African crime fiction. Uh, there's Sufisu Mzobe, who has just published his second novel. First one was absolutely spectacular. Uh, it happens in KwaZulu-Natal. There's a, there's so much happening in South African crime fiction. I find that extremely exciting. I think any country, any culture, any language needs to fill all the uh, rooms of its literary house, uh, which means genre fiction as well. Um, under apartheid, we only had um, high literature, uh, anti-apartheid literature, and then very lowbrow sort of romance, Mills and Boone stuff. There's nothing wrong with that. But there were a lot of rooms that were empty in our literary house. And I think it's a wonderful sign of, sign of normalization when in South Africa, you are seeing all the rooms now being filled by some fantastic talent. So uh, I think yeah. that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And my last, my uh, two more questions, if that's okay. Um, you... You spoke about you know you don't believe in writer's block, which which uh, which I agree with. And you spoke about if if someone wants to be a writer, they need to read and they just need to write. And something else I, I heard you say was that writing is sort of perspiration, not inspiration. I mean, is that the, is that sort of? And I, I really like that quote because you know it's it's hard work. But if someone was looking to become a writer, is that the main tip you give them? You just got to read and you just got to work at it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there are lots of other little things, but writing is about it's like anything, it's like any muscle, like any job, any craft that you do, you got to pay your dues and you got to learn it. And it's like riding a bike, you're going to fall off a couple of times, you're going to have some bruises, 
Uh, and the, one of the big problems, I think, with writing is that people take criticism extremely personally. Uh, as a former journalist, I remember in my first year as a journalist handing in my, my um, news stories to uh, the news editor or the subs and then just drawing all these red and green lines through it and you know just uh, killing it. Uh, and then you learn that an objective eye is the best thing that can happen to your writing. So don't be afraid of criticism. Don't be afraid of showing it to people who know what they're talking about, because I think that's the most important thing. A lot of people uh, make the mistake of giving their writing to their wife or their husband or their brothers or, you know, their mother for that uh, matter. And they're always going to say, oh, this is beautiful. Give it to someone who really knows what they're talking about and be willing to learn. Uh, all through my career, I've sent off short stories or novels saying, uh, this is what I've written. If you find it unfit for publishing, please tell me what, what I can improve so that next time I can do better. Because I honestly believe that writing is a lifelong learning experience. I'm still learning mm -hmm. things every day. I try and challenge myself with every new book to do something different, something that I haven't done before. Because if you don't challenge yourself, you're going to stagnate as a, as a writer, as, as with any other job. Uh, so try and do new things and, and just don't be afraid of, of sending your darlings out there and, and getting constructive and, and informed criticism. Yeah, no, that's a good, that's a very good tip. And I think something people do need to be aware about, they do take it very personally. I mean, I, I've been in that position too, and it is, you feel like someone's attacking your personality, but it's not, they're just sort of giving you some feedback, which, which, you've, which you've got to take on board. And the last question I wanted to ask you, Dion, was, uh, was about the new book that you, you spoke about. Is there anything you can tell us about that when it will be coming out? Is it a Benny Drissors? Any, any little tidbits you can tell us? Uh, it's coming out in Afrikaans in hopefully late October. Uh, the title is uh, Donker Drif. We, we don't have an English title. Usually by this time we have an English title uh, or at least a preliminary title. We don't have anything at the moment. It will be out in English next year in September. Uh, it's a Benny Grissel and Von Cupido story. It happens in Stellenbosch. Uh, and uh, it was a lot of fun to write. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a COVID lockdown novel. But it, it happens uh, in 2017. The book uh, actually takes place in 2017. But it was written under the weirdest of circumstances, under lockdown. It was a crazy time, Tim. I, I, I still a don't really know what to make time. of it. I, I found it very hard to, to focus. I wrote a lot less every day than I hoped to. And eventually the, the, the process uh, got me through it. The book is done and I'm, I'm very relieved for it. Great. Well, I, I really look forward to reading it. And Dion, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak to me today. It was really fantastic. Thank you, Tim. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to check out Dion's books, and I'd really recommend them, they're available in all good bookstores. His social media handles and website are in the show notes below. If you've enjoyed today's show, and I really hope you did, please do subscribe and share. If you've got any comments for me, drop me an email. My email address is also in the show notes below. So thanks again, and until next time, bye.